I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today is the General Secretary of CONCACAF. CONCACAF is the governing body of football in North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Philippe Mogio has a unique background. A native of Colombia, was a Davis Cup player and All-American at Duke, and transitioned out of tennis into the financial services world, and was working for the NBA when he was recruited in the CONCACAF. At the time, CONCACAF was struggling. The Department of Justice had brought charges against some of its executives, and we were looking for an individual that could work through these challenging times and partner with the new president. CONCACAF is experiencing unprecedented growth and are just finalizing their Gold Cup competition this week. Welcome, Philippe Mogio. Welcome, friends. Our guest today is one of the most incredible individuals I've ever had a chance to work with. Probably the most difficult uh, recruiting situation I've ever been involved with. Uh, our guest, Philippe Mogio, brings unique experiences. His international background, his passion and excellence in tennis, his world in banking, working at the NBA, and then eventually in a role that seemed impossible to be able to have success in. So, Philippe, let's go back to the beginning. Born in Colombia, a huge tennis player. You choose Duke. You play on the Davis Cup. You play professional tennis for a number of years. Then you're injured. You go to Australia to rehab. How does all that happen? Well, Jed, first, thank you for that amazing introduction. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I don't think you had ever shared with me how difficult. My search was. That's a great insight that, that you just gave away there. Uh, but uh, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. And how does it all come around? Well, you know, it really is all because of tennis and having played a, a sport for so long uh, since growing up and, and trying to play professionally that uh, this whole evolution of my career happens, right? As a professional athlete, you learn how to prepare, you learn how to try to be the best at what you do. And, and for me, it was always trying to be the best, always working hard and, and controlling what I can control, which is how hard I work. But I did realize as I was playing professionally after having gone to Duke, uh, having played for Duke and, and wanting to play professionally, represent Columbia for Davis Cup and, and uh, playing the tour for some time, you know, I realized that I wasn't going to go as far as I wanted to go. And that's a tough realization, right, as an athlete. And I realized that um, if I didn't make a turn at that moment and, and, and chose a different path career-wise, my options were going to be limited 
to tennis, whether it be coaching or being part of an academy or something like that. So that decision is what made me go to go to Australia to rehab. I wasn't going to come back and be in 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 a hundred percent. Even if I if I was, I wasn't going to go as far as I wanted to. So the opportunity to do my MBA in Australia uh, gave me a chance to take a take a, a different route. Why Australia? So at the time, this is around 1998. I had been playing professionally about three years, and during those three years, you know, I learned a lot about the sport and about myself. I had had the privilege of representing Colombia in Davis Cup. I had done okay in in certain tournaments, but unfortunately, I had come to the realization that I was not going to go as far as I wanted to go in the sport. And this was a very sobering realization because it led to the difficult decision that I needed to stop playing professionally. I needed to do so because if I kept playing longer, it would be much more difficult for me to pivot into a different career. You know, I looked at what my peers I had graduated with at Duke, what they were doing, and they were in banking, consulting, law, medicine. And the more time passed, the more difficult it would be for me to catch up if I wanted to pivot to a different career. So it really was a, a heart-wrenching decision because, you know, up until that point, tennis had been everything for me. I had devoted myself to the sport since I was seven years old. So in a way, I needed to get very far away from everything that would pull me back to training, to entering more tournaments, to want to continue competing. And going to Australia offered me the opportunity to make this break from the sport. So focusing on getting my MBA through teaching tennis in Australia really helped me prepare for that next chapter in my life, which I determined being there that I needed to be in New York and, and that I needed to pursue a career in banking. So how do you come back, repatriatize yourself uh, to the United States, and then get in financial services? and be able to start at a low level, work your way up, and then able to do these various business development opportunities in different parts of the world. I looked at all my peers, uh, grad having graduated from Duke, and, and looked at the great careers they were having in banking, consulting. Some had gone on to be great lawyers. And this was three, three and a half, four years into to my playing tennis. And I realized that if I didn't try to catch up quickly, I was going to be left behind. And I knew that getting into banking would be an interesting career path because you, you develop great skills in, in investment banking. It's what not kind about of skills are they when you talk about that? Great analytical skills, great technical skills when it comes to um, you know, putting together models on Excel and, and analyzing a company. and thinking about merger consequences, thinking about financing options for these companies and, and understanding industries and sectors very quickly, right? They, they teach you that in banking and you can utilize those skills to go pretty much into any, any industry, right, uh, from a management perspective. So I, I saw a lot of my peers having acquiring those skills, understanding what it took to be to be in banking, and from then either uh, maturing in the industry themselves or going on to to different industries uh, from there. So I thought as an entry point, going to an analyst program in banking could be an interesting position for me, and that's what I that's what I aimed for. I, I decided to to fly to New York, 
Uh, I called a friend from high school, a dear friend, who who said, uh, when are you coming? I said, uh, I'm getting there tomorrow. He's like, how long are you staying? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so I couch surfed in, in his apartment for uh, for quite some time, uh, incredibly patient uh, with me to have received me in that way. And, and he also made great introductions across uh, different uh, different contacts he had in, in, the, in the industry. And it uh, turns out one of those interviews was with a, a, a managing director at ING Bearings who was very passionate about tennis. So he, he liked my career path and, and the fact that I had tennis, played tennis professionally. And he took a liking to me and gave me an opportunity. Even though I had my MBA, usually you come in as an associate. He offered me a, a third-year analyst position. I said, give me the opportunity and, and, and I'll show it. Uh, so I came in into the bank as a third-year analyst in the media telecom space, uh, very focused in Latin America. So obviously, having been from Latin America and understanding the region well was, uh, was a sweet spot for me. Uh, and, and with that opportunity, I just ran with it. It was a great chance for me to kind of insert myself uh, in a corporate world, uh, get into a program that you know you're going to be uh, drinking from a fire hose because it's incredibly demanding. You know, the, the time uh, requirements uh, around the job are very demanding, right? So, so you have to be available 24-7. You work through weekends, and, and that's what you slot in for. And I knew that's what I was signing up for, and, and I, was, I, I knew I was going to learn a lot, uh, and I was ready for it. You succeeded, and then you had two other financial service companies recruit you. So talk about, talk about what those journeys were like and, and the differences you made when they brought you in and why you kept getting other opportunities? Yeah, so I stayed with, with ING Bearings uh, for some time. I grew with the group, uh, had a, a great colleagues in, in that group. That bank was bought over by another Dutch bank, AB, AB and AMRO. So I went on with that, um, with that group into a bigger group because now it was uh, a little broader with included some U.S. focus uh, as part of that industry, some, some telecom- telecommunications coverage here in the U.S. So I started working with companies like Motorola and, and, and other large uh, providers, also on the tech side, obviously. And, and that opened up a, a lot of opportunities for me. So from there on, I was recruited to work at Bank of America, uh, the investment banking side of Bank of America. Again, very focused on, on the telecom side. And, and that role was, became very domestic, meaning U.S. focused, which obviously much bigger market, great opportunity, uh, a bank putting in, uh, obviously a lot of focus on, on that side of the business, big balance sheet. So you had access to, to, you know, large corporates here in the U.S. and developing those relationships. Uh, they brought in great talent from, from other banks. Uh, the person who recruited me came from Morgan Stanley. He wanted to really build a telecom practice. So it was a great opportunity for me to continue growing in that space, continuing to develop the, the um, relationships uh, in the sector, and continuing to, to obviously uh, develop my own skill set and, and, um, and network. So what kind of product were you delivering? As an industry specialist, you, you deliver the bank's products, right? You, in a way, own the relationship with the companies. And you're providing uh, debt products, so you're, you're helping with the balance sheet of the bank to provide lending, and you're trying through that relationship to obtain businesses, uh, business opportunities such as M&A, uh, doing a capital raise, whether it's debt or equity. Uh, so we did a lot of bond financing, a lot of IPOs. Uh, you try to get into the advisory business by advising on, on a divestiture or an acquisition. 
So you're trying to deliver on all those. And obviously the advisory side was probably the larger profit business, which you try to leverage through the, the lending relationship. You still have this passion for sports. So how does the NBA find you? I never lost a passion for sports, right? Uh, having been uh, having played professionally tennis and uh, having gone to Duke, where it has amazing sports programs, uh, you never lose that. In, and in a way, that there was always that desire to get back into sports, more from an administrative side. And I was lucky enough that uh, actually one of the managing directors uh, at Bank of America, a great colleague who managed our M&A practice, was contacted for, for a role, an international role uh, at the NBA. And he put me as a reference or, or put me as a, a, as a potential candidate for it. Um, and, and they called me. At the time, you know, I didn't think much about the NBA from an international perspective. Obviously, I was a basketball fan having gone uh, to Duke. Uh, and, and as I started looking at the opportunity and what it represented internationally, it really uh, was very attractive, right? To think about growing a sport globally, specifically at the time was for focus in, into Latin America and using a great brand, a great property like the NBA was, was incredibly interesting uh, for me. So I pursued that opportunity really with a lot of gusto. <laughs> And it took a long time because I, that was around the 2008 time frame, which um, was obviously downturn. Yes. Uh, it was around the time that Bank of America had acquired Mary Lynch and there was that merger. So it was a, a huge downturn on the banking side and it became pretty bleak. And while I was recruiting for that role, actually I was laid off at Bank of America, right? I was... I was um, a part of a reduction in force at that time. And, and I was still looking at this opportunity, like that would, that would be a great next step. So it took about a year from the moment I was contacted for me to get that role uh, at the NBA. So I was, I was incredibly happy to, to join that group, uh, the international group managing the Latin American effort. And it was a fantastic career to shift because it gave me the opportunity to refocus back in sports to in a way refocus back in Latin America because I had been doing mostly uh, North American uh, focus in terms of industry, and and I loved every second of it. Well, you made some amazing uh, headway in Brazil, where they were you were trying to get basketball introduced. You're trying to do some kind of joint venture. Talk a little bit about that. What that was like. Right. So Brazil was obviously one of our biggest markets uh, in terms of international opportunity. Uh, as, as in terms of the, the area I covered, Mexico and Brazil were, were priority markets. The NBA had had been well known uh, back in the '90s in the Jordan era, and and every time I would travel to Brazil was, oh yeah, I remember the Jordan days, and it was great, and it was when when the NBA was on free to air, and but we don't hear about the NBA anymore. So clearly, there was a lot of work uh, to do, and the opportunity was massive. So you know. Part of the, the strategy for, for growing the, the sport and growing uh, the business of the NBA was to partner with the right companies. We hired a great managing director uh, for Brazil who, who knew the industry well, who knew, who had a great, great uh, network in Brazil, who helped us establish the right uh, relationships with Globo, who helped us establish the right relationship with the local league and form a joint venture with the league to help the league grow help basketball grow, and obviously through that, uh, the NBA would grow as well. 
So we looked at that. We also looked at uh, doing different efforts uh, in terms of activities to, to, to grow the sport and, and the fan base. We brought a uh, preseason game to Brazil back in, in 2015 or 2014, if I'm not mistaken. We brought the Miami Heat, who had, who had won the NBA um, championship uh, back then. So it was, it was a great effort and obviously helped create a lot of momentum uh, locally in Brazil. And now you look at where the NBA is there and it's, uh, it's really doing incredibly well. What was it like working with David Stern? I mean, I'm not sure how much direct contact you have, but you're always working in the NBA. He, you feel him. There's no doubt that uh, if you worked at the NBA when David was there, you would know he was there. You would know he's, he's managing and, and leading this business. Uh, so he had great visibility into everything. He knew what was going on everywhere. And I learned a lot from him. I learned the attention to detail and everything that you do in, in terms of your work represents the organization, right? So he had this demand of everyone that, that obviously you need to do your best at all times. You need to be incredibly focused on, on detail because something going wrong really doesn't look good on the brand of the NBA. And it doesn't look good on you as a, a, a as a representative uh, of the league. So everybody at the NBA is always incredibly dedicated, incredibly hardworking, and I think as a property, looking from the outside in, it just it's a property that commands respect, incredibly well managed. And and David created that, right? David created this property for for so many years. So having a, uh, an opportunity to work within that system. And uh, and looking at what individuals that have worked at the NBA have gone on to do, uh, he was always very proud of that. And I think when we announced that I was going to CONCACAF, he was one of the first persons that called me and congratulated me and, and said um, it's exactly that, that it's incredibly, that he takes pride in seeing so much talent out of the NBA family go on to do great things in sports. That's what you want out of your leader, somebody that when you take an opportunity like that, isn't trying to talk you out of it, but is saying the tremendous opportunity uh, that you have just uh, undertaken. Now, for our audience to understand, getting a hold of Philippe was the first challenge because trying to find out who this person was within the NBA that was running this region of the world who happens to speak Spanish and French and 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 I guess Portuguese as well, and English, we're finally able to get his phone number. And I can't remember how many messages I left before he finally returned my phone call. I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you remember. I remember very clearly, Jeb. Uh, and, and I got to say, you, you are persistent. <laughs> you are persistent. Because I, I did receive a few emails from you, a few calls. And I think at the time, you know, when, when I... You shared some details about the opportunity. You know, I was in a great place at the NBA. Obviously, we had so much to do, great growth potential. So I wasn't looking to leave by any chance. And and I think the opportunity, as you presented it from the outside in, looked uh, a little bit um, a little bit difficult, right? Well, Given no doubt. I mean, let's let's talk about Concacaf's part of FIFA, and at that point. Not only FIFA, but CONCACAF had gone through an unbelievable unrest with people in your role, with people in the organization, with people in different parts of the, uh, of the footprint 
being arrested for embezzlement, for all sorts of different things. Uh, at that time, there was a, a firm brought in to turn the business around. You're involved with the Department of Justice. Sydney was the lawyer that was working with you in FIFA. So it was complicated. This was not like walking into a turnkey situation. This was walking into an opportunity to be a leader, to rebrand the culture, to rebrand the organization, and to move your wife, who hadn't been out of New York City, to Florida. So when we talk about some of the challenges, it brought me back to my college days where I had to do home visits. The first visit was a dinner with you and Jane, and then the next dinner was with you, Jane, and her parents. In all my recruiting of different executives, it never got uh, involved in that many kinds of college-type meetings. But my college background in recruiting served me well, but, and having the opportunity to meet Jane and her family were delightful. Uh, the questions they asked were realistic. And then, you know, not only do we interview you in New York, we do the final interviews in Mexico City. So now you got to come, interview team, big group, and you know, universal support. Uh, plus, explain the governance structure because our audience probably doesn't understand everything about CONCACAF, but the world of soccer or football, as it's known around the world, is something that is, is happening regarding CONCACAF having a Gold Cup coming up. And then the world championships coming in the United States and Mexico in several years. So help our audience understand a little bit of that, if you would. Well, going back to how you helped me pique my interest in, in the opportunity, right? After you, you called and reached out multiple times, you mentioned this would be a role for CONCACAF. Obviously, this was 2015, early 2016 timeframe. CONCACAF and FIFA had gone through a huge investigation what they call FIFA Gate and the scandal there. CONCACAF, a lot of CONCACAF officials had been arrested and, and obviously had been subject to a lot of corruption. So from the outside in, looking at that, at that situation, you're like, nope, uh, I'm not interested. I'm quite well here. Have a great opportunity to continue growing with the MBA. Thank you, but no thank you was, was sort of my knee jerk. But you did manage to get a hold of me. And you managed to to help me look, as they say, under the hood and, and understand the situation and understand already the process that CONCACAF was going through. As you mentioned, there was outside consultant that had come in, Alvarez and Marsal, who were helping steer the organization in the right direction. Sidley was, uh, was helping from a legal perspective, uh, work with the Department of Justice and, and right-side the organization. Ultimately, you also helped me understand that CONCACAF as an organization had been a victim, right, of crimes perpetrated by the ex-president and the ex-general secretary. But organizationally, there was a solid organization there, a large team of about 70 people trying to do the right thing behind the sport who had been, uh, who had, in a way, the organization had been uh, part, of that, uh, part of that process uh, perpetrated by, by the, the previous administration. So looking at that situation, you know, I understood that here's an opportunity to get into a sport, which is the biggest sport in the world, very global sport, tremendously big in Latin America, and the opportunity to take an organization that is 
in a difficult situation, but really from the bottom up, help restructure it and, and, and run it. And the potential that we saw at that moment was gigantic, right? So I think with those bases, I, I started to look more closely at the role. I think what you said at the beginning, by the way, to further pique my, my interest, you said I could do the role out of New York, possibly. That it's something that you would need to consult with the council and, and it, it could be a possibility. So with that basis, uh, uh, Jane was on board at that, that I look at the opportunity, that it looked great. And obviously, as I started um, in the interview process, meeting with the CONCACAF Council, uh, meeting with who could potentially could become the president, which would be uh, at that time Victor Montagliani. Obviously, I uh, I really started to to like the opportunity. And after a lengthy process of interviews, as you mentioned, the last one was in Mexico City, which was where Victor was elected. This is, I guess, May 2016. Uh, so Victor gets elected. That's a great affirmation of where the organization is going to go because he obviously had great, a, a great campaign. Uh, I really liked his plan and, and his vision for the organization. At that time was also uh, the FIFA Congress in Mexico. So I had the opportunity to meet with the council there as part of that last interview. I guess it went well because after, right after the interview, you call me and you say, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is you have the role the bad news is it is out of, has to be out of Miami because that's where the organization uh, is based. And obviously, I had thought a lot about that, and I, I thought it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense for me to to be trying to run the organization out of New York. So I, I knew that would be coming, and Jane also knew that would be coming. So I think at that dinner you referenced, she told the story, and she actually uh, recounted quite often. She says. Uh, that I, at some point back, you know, a few years before, I had told her that uh, wouldn't it be great if we moved to Miami? And she said, over my dead body. Then she said, tell you what, if, if you get a great job in Miami, maybe we'll consider moving to Miami. She told that story at dinner. And what you said to her, he got you there, didn't he? <laughs> so that that's it. Uh, at that point, she knew it was case closed. You know, I have to tell you, you know how difficult it was for her to make the decision to move to Miami. And now having been here five years, I have to tell you, she's learned a lot about herself. She's been incredibly supportive. And she has written a book about her experience of moving to Miami. I'm not sure I come across as the terrific guy you described up front uh, in, in the book, but it is incredibly funny. You're mentioning it, Jed, so I'm going to have to get you a copy. What's the name so our audience can... Well, it's not published yet, but it's called Fed to the Alligators. You'll read it because it's, it's great. It, it'll, get, it'll bring the whole story uh, full circle for you since you were a, a huge part of it uh, at the beginning. You took the time to really get to know her, get to know her family, and, and address uh, her concerns. And at that point, it had to be a very quick turnaround, right? We needed to start right away. The organization was starting uh, Copa America Centenario. Our audience may not know what that means. So. Great. Yeah, so, so CONCACAF is one of the six continental uh, organizations of FIFA, the way FIFA governs the sport on a global basis. They divide the world into six regions, and, and CONCACAF is one of those regions. We represent 41 member associations, federations, uh, through which the, the sport is governed in, in the respective territories. And we manage 
and try to grow the sport through different activities. Obviously, first through competitions, and secondly, through a lot of development activities. And we run competitions across men's, women's, and, and youth, across beach soccer, futsal, and run the qualifiers for all the FIFA World Cups across these different tournaments. But we also run our own, which help us drive the revenue necessary to invest in the sport. And, and, and one of those biggest competitions is our Gold Cup, which we have coming ar- around the corner. And that particular year, uh, 2016, was actually a collaboration with Comable to play their traditional continental cup called uh, Copa America. And it was a joint effort between Comable and CONCACAF to put this uh, competition together. What, what, what do they embrace? So Comeball you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah, so Comeball is, is the Confederation for South America. They represent 10 federations in South America, and, and they play the Copa America competition every four years. Here in 2016, the idea was to play that competition in the United States and to have CONCACAF member associations participate as well. So it was a 16-team tournament, all played in the U.S., and, and obviously you have great countries like Brazil, Argentina, Colombia playing uh, in that traditional tournament, and you have the likes of, of the U.S., Mexico, Costa Rica joining uh, in that great competition. So it was a great celebration of the sport that year happening across the U.S., and the ability to get that competition off the ground after the scandals that had gone on was also a great achievement for both organizations. It helped us really, in a way, turn the page and great, develop great momentum looking at the future of the sport in this country. Think about the possibility of a World Cup coming to this region. In the horizon, it was the, ability, it was the opportunity to bid for the 2026 World Cup which uh, eventually it was won by a region in collaboration between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. So that World Cup has been decided by FIFA that it will come here. And, and that obviously gives us a great runway to continue developing uh, the sport up through 2026 and obviously beyond because uh, we saw what happened here in this country in 1994 when the, first, when the World Cup came to the U.S. The fact that the MLS developed in the back of that and, and, and how the sport has grown since then leveraging that, that, that initial World Cup uh, is, is a great testament of, of what it can do uh, for a sport in the region. When you think about what you inherited and where you are right now, what accomplishments are you most proud of? So during the past four years, I have to say that our number one focus has been on putting football and putting the sport first. This has been Victor's top priority since he was elected in 2016. And it really guides all our decision-making. You know, when we're making decisions, we're always asking ourselves, what is the best football decision we can make? And looking at our overall region, one of the biggest issues we saw was that most of the national teams in our member associations were not having the opportunity to compete as often as they should be competing. On the men's side, this was the basis for the creation of a completely new competition for us. This was the creation of the CONCACAF Nations League, which, again, we had the final four in the edition here in Denver in June. What this competition has done is provided all of our member associations the opportunity to play consistently during a four-year cycle in between the FIFA World Cups. In the past, most would play only a few, a handful of matches in World Cup qualifying as the system was designed to try and reduce the group as quickly as possible. 
So getting this competition off the ground has been a resounding success for us and, and really a watershed moment for the Confederation. On the women's side, we have announced something similar. We have developed a four-year ecosystem of competitions that will allow our women's teams to compete more often on a consistent basis and to be able to play for the first time for many of them uh, matches at home. And on the youth side, we adapted a lot of our formats and qualifiers so that the teams competing in those would be playing more matches in centralized locations. When you put all this together, we have been able to more than triple the amount of matches that our federations are playing during a four-year cycle compared to, to previous four-year cycles. And we really believe this increase in competition is significantly fostering the development of the sport in our region. This is, we're in the United States and people are looking at our national team, both the women's team and the men's team. What is your sense of the, the progress our men's team is making? We know the success the women's team has had. Yes, on the women's side, it is admirable what the U.S. women's national team has done. They have dominated and they won the fourth FIFA Women's World Cup in France in 2019. They have represented our region so well on the global stage and they are serving as great inspirations to young girls, not only here in the U.S., but obviously across the entire region. And on the men's side, you know, it's great to see so much young talent. You have a significant increase in players and young players uh, playing in top leagues around the world. And you have great players here in the MLS with great youth programs across the, the MLS teams and, and their academies. And I think the U.S. has demonstrated the talent they have uh, when they won the Nations League finals in June in Denver. Uh, I think that was a great moment for for U.S. fans to see how much talent there is coming together, building towards, obviously, the 26th World Cup in this region. And possibly, obviously, they need to qualify, but uh, Qatar as well in 22. Well, again, Philippe, you uh, taking time to visit with our audience and getting the chance to visit with you on a personal level uh, is outstanding. To see the success that you've created and what you inherited and how you and Victor have raised every level of the organization starts with integrity and transparency, which your leadership has provided. So I think, you know, you've taken on this role and have done an incredible job. Appreciate all you're, you're doing to, to help the sport. So thanks for being our guest today. Well, Jed, thank you for your time. It's always fantastic talking to you. It's always inspirational talking to you. Uh, I got to know you very well. Uh, through the recruiting process. And if it hadn't been you, I'm not sure I would have made that decision because uh, you really opened up uh, a very different perspective for me in, in that entire process. And, and I'm forever thankful for that, Jed. And, and I know my family is as well because you convinced uh, them as well to, to move to Miami. And, and here I am, part of a great organization. We're doing uh, really well and have obviously tremendous potential for for continued growth so so want to thank you jed as well for your tremendous efforts in in that recruiting process and and for your friendship well thanks it works both ways and i've really enjoyed the relationship with you and your family so thank you mm -hmm.